In this episode of the Ownership Economy, we speak with Jessica Van Meer, co-founder and COO of MintStars. MintStars aims to build a more sustainable creator economy that puts creators first. The team is building a platform to combine non-fungible token subscriptions with marketplace resales. Fans subscribe to receive content, and the NFT model allows for value to accrue via restrictions on content supply and access. The company is an interesting new model that solves many of the problems with sites such as OnlyFans. Jessica also brings her extensive work as a researcher and current doctoral student on labor rights to her viewpoints on product market fit. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining us today, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. So we like to start all of these just by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself. And really, you can start wherever you like. You know, where does your story start and how did you enter the larger Web3 space? And just so I'm clear, you don't have to start with the Web3 stuff. Start wherever you like. Ooh, okay. Where does my story start? Well, right now, I'm a PhD student in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And my research focuses broadly on women's rights and labor rights, particularly marginalized workers with a focus on Latin America. And I kind of got started down that path initially in undergrad um, doing research on human trafficking, and then soon after became interested in sex work and did my honors thesis research on sex workers' rights in Argentina and Ecuador, went and did my master's in the UK in development studies. And that is where I first got interested in blockchain because my master's program brought someone in to talk to us about the potentials of blockchain for international development. For example, for reducing costs for remittances, combating corruption by enabling international aid to be tracked. And I thought that was really fascinating. And so that is kind of what piqued my interest. And then following sex workers online on Twitter, I saw how many were using crypto to get around the financial discrimination that they faced from traditional payment processors like PayPal or Venmo and became very interested in the space as opening up possibilities for financial inclusion for people who face banking discrimination. Very cool. I think, you know, you're like Martin in one way in that, I mean, I just mentioned, but I've been trying to get Martin to quit his PhD for years as a fellow PhD quit myself. I think, you know, listening to some of your past podcasts, you mentioned, uh, you know, how academia sort of appeals to you at this point in your career because you, you know, you you did your honors thesis. Yeah, I take it. I think I believe you worked for a few years and you're like, oh, PhD, actually, I'm going to go back and do this. And honestly, from my perspective, your PhD topic sounds cool as hell, actually. So like I can't I get dump on it too much. But how did you sort of back into this specific topic? Because you've touched on a lot of really interesting subjects around precarity, the nature of labor, platform economics. How did you decide on this topic? Thank you. Well, I remain, you're right. I did go and work for a couple of years. I was working first on Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor of Georgia. I'm from Georgia originally. And then I went back to the UK and worked for a women's rights law firm that represented victims of employment discrimination, sexual abuse, revenge porn. And I really enjoyed doing that. But I found myself kind of daydreaming at my desk about sitting in a cafe and reading feminist theory. And (laughs) during the pandemic, I randomly decided I was going to take like a few days off from work and just work on my revising my master's thesis. And then I was like, oh, I should probably go back to school. (laughs) This is what I'm doing for fun. Um, For sure. If you're taking days off to do your master's, redo your master's, absolutely. That sounds pretty good. I can't make fun of you for that. That's like something is drawing you to academia at that point. Granted, we were all in lockdown at that point and there was nowhere else to go. But yeah, that's kind of what drew me back. And also that I felt that the research I had done previously was just the most fascinating and fulfilling thing I had ever done and that I wasn't done with it. And I remained really passionate about sex workers' rights, but didn't really know how to continue working on that. So I came back wanting to continue to explore that, but also wanting to kind of broaden my horizons. And so that's why I've started looking more broadly at the informal economy. And because surprisingly, there's a lot of literature on informal labor, but the literature on informal labor and the literature on sex work don't really talk to each other because people don't tend to think about sex work as a form of labor. But it really is similar to any other kind of work that happens under the table, like domestic work or street vending. I think the dynamic within the work are very similar. And in terms of how the government regulates it, except for there's that additional element of criminality in some countries. So I'm interested in exploring kind of the 
similarities and differences in experiences between different types of informal workers. So for instance, potentially comparing domestic workers and sex workers and how the government regulates them. And also I'm interested in how doing that kind of work develops the workers' political identities, because in the research I did, I spoke with a lot of sex worker organizations, and through activism, many of my participants came to develop a sense of themselves as political subjects and as citizens who could demand rights from the government. And so I'm very interested in how do those grassroots activist groups shape people's political identities. Gotcha. I'm actually very interested in what you discover on that. So let's definitely keep in touch on that. I don't want to turn this into the like, let's, you know, really dig into qualitative methods, anthropology podcast, not the place, but I'm very interested in where you land on this for sure. Personally, you touched on some some things that I'd like to unpack a little bit just for folks who may not be familiar with the, the concepts, right? So you focus a lot on the precarity and the nature of labor in developed countries and how, you know, maybe it's a secular trend, maybe your research will really show what's driving it. But you mentioned that labor markets are beginning to resemble those of underdeveloped countries, right? And in developed countries, they're starting to resemble those of underdeveloped countries. And I guess one thing that I'd really like to dig in a bit on is, can you give us an idea of what underdeveloped countries' economies look like Right. Like what is an informal economy and how does this really differ from the perspective of labor participants, say, in, you know, maybe Ivory Coast versus I'm just picking a random country here. You can pick whatever you like. But how just so people understand, like, what is an informal economy and what is that experience like and what are you principally interested in? So I don't tend to use the word underdeveloped country. And I try to avoid using like developing versus developed, although it's difficult to avoid because there's not good terminology. Yeah. But oh yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. I have a very specific reason for why I say underdeveloped, because I usually put purposefully underdeveloped in that whole thing. Right. I'm kind of borrowing from the Walter, uh, what's his name? I can't believe I can't remember his name. Sorry, I'm like being prematurely defensive, but I use it for a very specific purpose. I'm not criticizing because there's no good terminology. I I use them all the time, guys, you know, so I'm just, I'm very happy to use them just fulfilling my kind of colonialist role, you know, so I'll use them consistently. (laughs) Yeah, I will talk to you about you and how you use it, but yes, sorry, Jessica, please continue. (laughs) No, 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 that's okay. I, I try to use the terms global north and global south, but I also hate those terms because they don't actually make geographic sense, but I find them a bit more respectful. So in the global south, or what we think of as underdeveloped and developing countries, about 50% of the economy is informal. And informal means what we would think of as like under the table work. So work that is not really regulated by the government, workers who don't have access to social security benefits, retirement benefits, they may or may not pay tax probably more often don't, but sometimes do. And they don't have access to labor legislation protections. So commonly, this could include street vending. It could include domestic workers who are just paid in cash. It could include, you know, babysitters, nannies, really anyone whose work is primarily remunerated in cash and doesn't have like official registered employment. And it was more recently that I started thinking about economies in the global north is becoming more informalized, really actually through looking at the dynamics on OnlyFans and the number of people who turned to OnlyFans during the pandemic to make up for losing their jobs in losing wage jobs or quitting their wage jobs because they didn't feel comfortable during COVID. And that made me think very interested in how the platform economy is creating this kind of safety net for workers or escape route for people who aren't happy in wage work and want more flexibility. And that, to me, kind of mirrors a lot of the dynamics in the informal economy, because it increases often for people flexibility to be able to work when and and where they want to, but it also decreases protection of the workers because they don't have the kind of traditional protections of wage work with retirement benefits, healthcare plans, etc. And so my argument is that the expansion of the platform economy in the global north is part of an increasing trend away from that more stable wage labor, secure kind of welfare state. It's making our economies more similar to informal economies in the global south, but then there's this kind of new introduction of the role of the tech company. So unlike informal work where the worker often maybe just kind of a small entrepreneur in a family-run business. Now the tech company is kind of 
overseeing everything they do and influencing them through algorithms and kind of invisible pressures. Got it. And so that's really how the principal difference between the maybe we'll go a global north formal economy is there's the the labor participation is now starting to look more like these informal economies of the global south specifically from the perspective of labor right and so maybe some of the platforms you could be talking about as well could be just for example it could be something like patreon or only fans or these types of platforms yeah yeah exactly i mean mm-hmm. most of the work of the platform economy has been on uber but i'm very interested in platforms that tend to be used more by women mm-hmm. so only fans etsy poshmark all these platforms that kind of monetize traditional forms of work by women. Yeah. So, and and I think you, I think you really touched on a nerve here by focusing on sex workers and their inability to access the financial system. Because I think like this has been the focus of my you know probably thirteen or twelve years of legislation, right, from various waves, where the fallout is usually just oh, a sex worker can't now access payments. Before we get into exactly what you're doing with the company that you started, can you walk us through, you know, we've kind of walked and systematically gone through like, you know, what is the informal economy in the global south? How is the global north kind of mirroring that? And we're also kind of looked at it from the perspective of a labor participant, but now getting really specific around the folks that you're sort of focusing on. Can you walk us through the average experience of a model or creator, this current tooling and legal structures, right? So maybe pick whatever example you like, but just so we can really understand uh, what that perspective looks like today. Mm -hmm. So I think obviously OnlyFans has been the biggest player here. And OnlyFans has done something really good in the adult industry, which is enabling adult creators to have more independence and more direct relationships with their fans. Whereas previously, an adult performer would more likely have to work with a studio that would pay them maybe a few hundred dollars for a scene. And then they wouldn't necessarily make more money depending on how well that scene did online. Now they can much more easily set up their own account, build their following, get paid directly. But a lot of sex workers also try to do more independent work online. So using social media sites like Twitter and get payments directly from their fans through payment apps. But unfortunately, most of those payment apps discriminate against adult creators. So PayPal is notorious for shutting down sex workers accounts. Most online sex workers will have had their PayPal account shut down multiple times and continue to try to find ways around it. Venmo is super quick to shut down accounts, cash up to some extent as well. And so for sex workers who've been around for a while, who are experienced, there's a good chance that they will have gone through a variety of payment apps and kind of exhausted their options. And on top of that, social media sites, particularly Instagram, shut down their accounts. So they will maybe have worked really hard to build up a following of 10,000 on Instagram. And then the next day, bam, it's gone. And there's really no way to get it back. There's no kind of helpful appeals process. And that means that a lot of sex workers have to turn to platforms like OnlyFans because it, and that is part of why the company was so successful because it's one of the only places that they're really permitted to post their content and monetize their labor. But the downside is that the platform takes a 20% cut of their earnings versus being able to interact with and receive payments directly. Definitely. And then as you mentioned, if you think of the broader platform economy as including, I guess you could even call it lead generation, right? Then like Instagram and Twitter, are almost like how you're getting yourself out there, but you don't own any of the leads. They're just, you know, you don't have their, there's no direct relationship other than, yeah, they can reply to you, but you can't be like, oh, great. Like, let me, you know, I know who you are. I have your email address or your phone number. I can actually build, if you're a person I'd like to monetize separately from everyone else, I can't do that. Right. So this kind of maps to a lot of the other undercurrents in Web3, right? Where people are like, oh, we need to have a decentralized social network like Lens, where you can take the record of all of your follows and build your own CRM or even something that's not Web3, something like Mastodon, which we'll put in the show notes, right? That basically says, hey, you can own all of your followers, go from federation to federation within the network and not worry about getting banned. And you can set the terms for each one. So it sounds like the major risks that creators run on these platforms is not getting paid and then getting shadow banned, basically. If I can bucket them simply into those two things, right? And yeah. those sort of stem from, I'm just guessing here, I'm happy to you know hear you kind of you poke at this, but it seems like they 
also maybe stem from a really cautious over an overly cautious interpretation of legislation for paying sex workers maybe right so is that kind of how a lot of these how the the precarity and uncertainty originates for a lot of these folks is it really driven is it primarily driven by legislation that's right legislation and also fear of perhaps moral judgment but it's interesting you mentioned mastodon because after legislation was passed in 2018 called FOSTA-SESTA. For anyone who's not familiar, that was a bill that made it, so it made platforms liable if there was advertisement for prostitution on their websites. And previously under section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, platforms could not be held liable for content published on their platform, but this carved out an exception to that for sex trafficking. But the legislation conflates sex trafficking and prostitution and makes it such that any website in the U.S. that allows advertisements for sex work, for in-person sex work, could be held liable for sex trafficking. And so what that meant is that all of these websites that sex workers, full-service sex workers, I don't like to use the word prostitutes, but that's the word people would understand, used to find clients had to shut down. And people were very fearful at that time that that was going to mean that Twitter was going to ban them as well. And someone built a platform called Switter on Mastodon, which is like sex work Twitter. Sex work Twitter, yep. Kind of a safe alternative. But unfortunately, it didn't have enough of a user base and following for it to become really useful for people. And so everybody could move back to Twitter when it seemed like they weren't going to get shut down. Um, so it's great to have these alternatives, but it's difficult when you don't have the yeah. safe option. Yeah, and the, and the network effect, of course, that like comes with all of that. And then, you know, if you're with SESTA and FOSTA, of course, that will link to that in the show notes. There's an extensive history there. But then on the perspective of maybe payments, I'm curious to know, like, is it because look, here's the thing, right? When people come in, they're like, hey, I'm doing a Web3 or crypto play for whatever. Most of the time, Martin and I are like, you know, first, why does it need to be this? Right, like not that they were being intentionally skeptical. It's more like we want to really understand. Like uh, this is before we're getting into wind stars, right? Just we're trying to understand. Like, where do you think maybe you know in your work maybe you've explored this? Where from the perspective of these platforms like PayPal and uh, you know Venmo and Quercash, why are they so overly cautious with this? Type? Does it originate from stuff like Sesta Fasta? Is it something else? What drives their oh you're getting paid for maybe sex work? You're banned <laughs> type thing. It comes before SESTA-FOSTA from a fear of liability for sex trafficking and an overly broad association or conflation in their minds between sex work and exploitation. And that has gotten worse in recent years because there have been these massive campaigns by groups that call themselves anti-trafficking groups, but are more morality driven. Like there's a big campaign called Trafficking Hub, which was trying to get Pornhub shut down. And there's this kind of coalition of groups which have ties to the religious right, but also kind of ally themselves with groups that call themselves feminist and go after these platforms. Sometimes, you know, the motivations are good because platforms like Pornhub have not always taken sexual abuse seriously. There have been cases, and I worked on some at the law firm I worked at, of people who had um, videos that were not consensual posted of them on Pornhub, and the company did not take those videos down when they asked them to. So yes, the, the companies did need some pressure on them, but the unfortunate result of these campaigns, basically their tactic has been to go after their payment methods and to lobby credit card companies like Visa and MasterCard to stop working with these platforms and also lobbying the banks to not work with them. And so that has put a tremendous amount of pressure on these financial institutions who, if they weren't already discriminating, they do now because they don't want to get accused of sex trafficking. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I totally hear you on the, I think you, we, I see this a lot in my feed and I'm not going to touch on it too much. It's just, you know, it's the whole, like, I'm really concerned with trafficking thing as a cipher to just be anti everything, sex work, <laughs> like turf swerves, everything, right? It's really just a, 
it's like a little chink in the armor they use to get in there and be like, yeah, no, we really care about trafficking. It's like, well, we're no one is saying that trafficking isn't happening, right? It's just a matter that you want to shut down the entire industry under this yeah, guy. I really care about trafficking. I also really care about trafficking within factories. I really care about trafficking within domestic work, within the modeling industry. My younger sister's a model and there's huge abuses there. And mm-hmm. within nail salons. But nobody's campaigning for those industries to be shut down, even though they have really high levels of trafficking too. The answer, in my opinion, is have greater labor protections, give people greater rights and independence to be able to walk away from a situation that is abusive. Can we come back? Because I think we're about to go into kind of the business model for MinStars and the need for it. But can we come back to just the challenges around the platformification of this kind of of this particular segment of the labor market, because in other segments of the labor market, so for instance, with skilled labor, and I think I think in many ways, the work that you're doing has some unskilled elements to it and some skilled elements to it, and so we probably need to bifurcate that a little bit, right? Because if you're thinking about just the populations that you're looking at, right? So like I could imagine that you could have kind of cooperative platform for cleaners, right? Which might be considered, you know, unskilled labor, right? Whereas a, a sex I, worker- uh, I'm going to be picky about language here too. I personally contest the concept in economics of skilled and unskilled labor. Okay. Okay. We can go down that rabbit hole, but like just (laughs) in detail, but in, in a lot of the literature in the skilled labor marketplaces, which is kind of how the literature refers to it. And we can talk kind of anthropologically about whether or not that's the right literature. One of the challenges beyond not getting paid, beyond getting banned due to kind of the payments that we're talking about is a glut of labor as well. And I'm wondering, I would think that it would be fairly hard to build a platform that is, well, let me not put my own biases on this. I wonder to what extent the kind of constraint of supply that has been successful in other digital cooperatives and a necessary component of what are called membership freezes or essentially, you know, an application process to get in. Is that another effective tool that you see in this particular area? Or do you feel like that's not another, the overglut of labor is not another reason that there has been kind of a commodification of people that are working in this industry? That's a good question. I haven't seen a limitation of the labor supply among economies for sex work. And you're right, there is this kind of race to the bottom on a lot of these platforms where on OnlyFans, for instance, because there's been so many people getting on it and wanting to, they, you know, they read these news headlines like OnlyFans model makes $100,000 a month. And obviously that's only the very top people. And that takes a huge amount of work. And probably that model is also hiring a bunch of assistants and photographers and producers to help her create that business. But people see that and think, oh, well, I can do that. And so you have people competing with each other on the platform and therefore undercutting each other in price to try to attract more subscribers because they might struggle to attract them. It's become very common on OnlyFans that people would even offer subscriptions for free to get people to just subscribe. And then actually the way they make their money is through pay-to-view messages or custom content. So yes, there is this problem, which I hope that our business model will help to solve and I can get into more limitations. I've seen maybe a little bit in the research I did in Ecuador, where there were a lot of local sex workers collectives and that required membership to be part of the collective and work in certain areas. But I don't know that they would tell someone you can't be doing sex work. Yeah, I'm more thinking of it. I mean, as we get into kind of your model, I think this will come back again. And I just wanted to kind of flag a third area where these labor platforms have been like a third kind of dynamic that's occurred, which is since the 1980s, you've got over a billion people entering the labor force. And so if I'm in Bangladesh and I go on a platform like Upwork, right, it's actually a really positive platform for me in a lot of ways. And there's a similar dynamic of a secondary currency around ratings or what you say with OnlyFans around getting people to essentially subscribe for free in order to have kind of this transactional model post out. I mean, it's effectively a secondary currency as well, right? Uh, Where you're trying to get your reputation up through the subscriptions. But someone in Bangladesh, you know, having a platform for you know, being a good UX designer, that's really freeing and liberating for me, right? But if I have to compete with that person in Ohio, it's that glut of labor 
is going to kind of compromise my ability to compete and probably be kind of a depressing force on on wages. And one of the ways that the literature kind of talks about this and some of the case studies we've had on is that you restrict supply through a membership, right? And here I would feel like that would be really difficult to do well. Like, can you imagine, you know, how do you apply on a platform as a sex worker and not get denied and not have kind of a constructive process that's actually, you know, multidimensional and not, I think it'd just be hard from a governance perspective, but I think it's just something, another kind of dynamic to flag before going into the specifics of the business model. Yeah. Also, who are you cutting out when you do that? Exactly. That's my big concern, right? Because immediately you're going to be like bringing your own, I mean, can you imagine being a steward in that DAO, right? Because you're bringing your own biases right around like what gets you off. I mean, we're talking sex workers, not kind of broader kind of feminist kind of labor platforms or platforms that empower women, but I would not want to be a steward of that DAO. That would be really tricky. And so, yeah, that's like, I think like not, we didn't, I don't think we lost the plot. This is all super relevant, but now, you know, I think the picture we've seen so far is that there's definitely a hugely underserved market of people who are made precarious by legislation and overly cautious interpretations of a lot of legal risk. In addition to like, I haven't even touched on the dangers of their day-to-day work, which is has its own thing. But, and so, you know, maybe you could tell us a bit now, underserved market, you know, you've been super close to them, anthropological as and with anthropological studies, qualitative studies and what have you, you've, you've seen the financial discrimination. What made you sort of think, well, there's an opportunity here using Web3 tools to meet these needs. How did that story come into the picture? Yeah, that was not in my plans. So I had left my job at the law firm in December of 2020, and I was home applying to jobs. So I had a lot of time on my hands and began talking about this issue with a friend of mine named Dan, who I had met in London, in part because he had a friend who was an OnlyFans creator who had had a video of hers pirated onto another site without her consent. And he came to ask me for advice about what she should do. And so we started talking about the need for a platform that would better protect online sex workers' interests and the injustice of the payment discrimination that they were facing. And he was like, well, it would be really cool if there were an app that enabled sex workers to get paid directly. And I was like, well, yeah, it really would. Tell me if you figure it out. And he was like, oh, we could do it together. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, I have no business experience. I don't know anything about crypto. But he was like, no, we're two smart people. We can figure this out. And so we started looking into crypto as potential solution to payment discrimination found that it would be very difficult to make an app that just enabled. We wanted to do like fiat to crypto payments through an app. Um, There's actually an app that exists like this called Strike, which enables peer-to-peer payments like Venmo, except for it happens in crypto on the back end. But that doesn't actually fully enable you to get around the discrimination because you still have to work with the banks and the banks are the ones who discriminate. And then around that time was when NFTs were starting to really blow up. And I read this story about the supermodel Emily Ratajkowski doing an NFT sale. And her story was that this artist, male artist named Richard Prince had stolen a photo off of her Instagram, made a lewd comment underneath it, and then blew that up and sold it as a painting for $40,000 without her consent. And there wasn't really anything she could do about it. So she bought that painting from him. And then she ended up taking a photo of herself standing in front of it and selling that photo as an NFT for $175,000 and called it buying myself back. And I was like, oh my God, that is so cool. What a badass move. (laughs) And I was like, wait, this technology could really be interesting to help all women reclaim ownership over their images. And what if we enabled everybody to do that? And I was like, oh, Dan, wouldn't it be cool if someone made an NFT OnlyFans? And he was like, that's a fantastic idea. We should do it. So that is how we got started. And then soon, um, you know, as we explored more, realized that this had a lot of potential to help all kinds of creators, not just sex workers, and solve a lot of the problems that they face too. Because in the creator economy as a whole, creators really struggle with burnout, feeling like they have to be constantly posting 24-7. And what NFTs enable is to make money not only the first time you post the content, but ongoing, because as it's resold, you can get royalties. And then because your fans can also make money off of selling the content, they become incentivized to go out and promote you. And so now it no longer has to be just the creator marketing themselves and spending 10 to 30 hours a week promoting their account on Twitter, but they have this kind of team of fans who will be out there promoting them too. 
Got it. So that's a pretty succinct description of how the platform will work, but let's dig in a little bit, right? There's, I definitely agree. There's some interesting folks using leveraging the same dynamic in luxury goods, luxury memberships, like wine clubs, stuff like that. It all makes sense. I have no idea why it didn't click with me. Maybe it's because I don't know enough sex workers, even though I know some, I have some friends who are, you know, but it's never, it's never something that I like, right? When you said it, and I was just like, obviously that should be a thing, <laughs> right? So if we dig into it a bit more than like, can you tell us a bit, um, you know, let's say there's, what's her, what was her name? Amaranth, who like last week uh, was in, or last week or week before that was in the news because she, on her stream, revealed that she had been, you know, she's ongoing victim of mental and probably physical abuse from her partner on her stream, right? And so like, if you were not to use Amaranth as an example, but that's a really well-known person and we're probably in the top 0.001% of creators. So someone who's in that 0.001%, right? If they were looking at MinStars, maybe you could kind of walk us through a use case of like, how is it different between like, you do this today on OnlyFans or Twitch or what have you, you can do it this way on MinStars. Yeah, that was really sad. I was following what happened with Amaranth because I had actually just met her and her manager at TwitchCon like the week before. Really, really heartbreaking to see that. But so I'm not going to use her as an example because I think it's a little too soon. I agree. Um, <laughs> and my apologies to anyone listening. This is just the first one that popped in my head. But, you know, just no, to mean, represent. She, the, yeah. She's the number one creator on OnlyFans. So makes sense. But so a creator who signs up to our platform, it would be very similar to signing up for OnlyFans or Patreon. Um, you create your account and you set your subscription price, but then you also set your royalty fee. So you get to decide what percentage of the resales you want to receive. And your fans can subscribe to you just like on other platforms. You Maybe your fans sign up, they subscribe to you for $10 a month. But then every time you post a piece of content, it will mint one NFT of that piece of content for each one of your subscribers. And so if you have 10 subscribers, when you post a photo, each one of those subscribers will receive one. It'll be a one of 10 NFT. A difference between us and OnlyFans or Patreon is when you subscribe to someone on those platforms, you get access to all of the content they've ever posted. And that means it's really easy for people to go on and screenshot everything that they want and then unsubscribe and then go pirate it or whatever. Instead, we're not going to enable people to get access to everything. We're going to give people the content during the time that they're subscribed, but then they're able to keep that content, watch it as many times as they like, or they can resell it onto other community members on our marketplace. And that enables a level of discoverability for the creator because other traditional platforms like OnlyFans don't have an explore page. The creator has to do all of the marketing themselves. On our marketplace, new people who are browsing the platform looking for new creators to follow can discover a creator, find a piece of content, basically try it before they subscribe, buy it for a few dollars, the fan will make some money and the creator earns their royalty fee. And so now that creator has made more money than they would have made otherwise from that piece of content. The fan is happy. And that new person who has bought this piece of content on the marketplace might say, I really like this and I'm going to go subscribe to that creator as well. The other aspect is that because you're only receiving the content during the time you're subscribed, the earlier you subscribe to a creator, the more rare content you get access to. So those first 10 subscribers who have a one of 10 NFT in the future, if that creator gets really popular and has a thousand or 10,000 subscribers, those later subscribers might really want access to the original content. And the only way they can get it is by buying it from one of those first 10. So that creates a price mechanism for the value of the content to go up. And so it creates a more sustainable relationship to content that incentivizes quality over quantity and incentivizes the fans to help the creator succeed. I think that's a really smart way of limiting supply in a different way. Another idea, but I don't know this model very well, might be to limit the number of subscribers and vary the price based on demand, right? So that you essentially say, I only want hundred subscribers. I don't want my stuff all over the web, right? And effectively people can trade their percentage allocation in the subscription as well. But both would effectively be doing what we were talking about before, which is limiting supply in interesting ways. Yeah, we're thinking about introducing that in the future if there's demand for it, because a lot of people have asked us if we're going to do like NFT gated subscriptions where the subscription itself is an NFT that you can resell. And we want to gauge from our creators after we've gone live, whether that's something that they would want. Cool. Very cool. 
Martin, if you have something else, go ahead, sir. No, 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 no. I don't okay. want to hijack this. I keep bringing it back to economics. No, Sorry. no, no. You, honestly, you should. Because, I mean... like, I am just in, like, speechless, like, gushing mode right now. This is really fucking cool. Because, like, here's the thing. I know nothing about how the OnlyFans model works. Like, I've only ever landed on a landing page. I'm like, oh, that's OnlyFans. Okay, whatever. Right? So I had no idea they don't do marketing. And they, like, that there's this immense marketing burden on the actual creators in the platform. So solving that, or at least having some hypotheses for how that can be solved with NFTs, this is really fucking interesting, right? So like the idea being that you have, you know, even piggybacking off Martin's idea of limiting, you know, the number of memberships, but even if you didn't do that, the fact that, you know, if I jump on and subscribe to Amaranth or whoever, I can view everything from start from the beginning of time, you know, it doesn't really make sense because you can also create this dynamic of like, these are my early believers, right? Like these are the people who are, we're here from the beginning and that content, if your marketplace, you know, functions to clear prices, they actually literally give you the price of what is, what does the market value the first few pictures of X creator at? That's wild. That's yeah. super And this is where I think that this model could be really useful in other sectors as well. Like music, for example, like people love to say that they were the first to get into a band before they got big. But you can't really prove it, right? You can be like, oh, I, totally. I have this t-shirt from their concert. With this model, you can prove that you are one of the first fans because you have maybe access to this really rare piece of content. And so maybe you subscribe to a musician before they were really well known and you have an NFT of a video of them practicing a new song. Well, let's say that song then you know reaches the top 40. You could potentially sell that NFT on for a much higher price. Yeah. And like, I like stuff like this that really digs into like some, this is not a commentary on sex work, this creator in general, right? Just, I love the th- stuff that just kind of hones in on our more like, I guess, what's the term? I don't know if it's baser instincts, but people like to show off, right? Like this yeah. is like, this <laughs> yeah. is really great, right? This is not a comment on the type of work on it. It's just in general, the, the people who are there are like, yeah, I would love to be able to brag that I was one of the first 10 listeners of that and I can prove it. Do you want to be able to prove it? This is the price, right? Like this is really, I can definitely, I would love to see how that unfolds. But my guess would be that that is something people are definitely willing to pay for, right? Like, of course, they'll be able to see like, yeah, it changed hands from this time to that time. But like, that's still super interesting. And it's a way to trade a really, like an intersubjective reality that is now tokenized into something like being transacted upon. Super cool. I'm sorry for everyone who listens and is like, I would like you to ask more questions. I'm just really fascinated by this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think incentivizes both the consumer, but also the collector. And so we've seen the NFT market has been primarily about collectors. And it's kind of a niche market, right? How many people really care about owning a JPEG file and are going to treat that as a speculative investment and spend thousands of dollars on it? Well, okay, it's a bit niche. Most people buy content online because they want to consume it. But now you kind of combine those two things and you also create the possibility of relationships between fans because fans can become kind of curators of content and other fans might go to them Let's say we have maybe a yoga creator on the platform, and then there's a fan who like goes and follows all of the yoga creators, and other fans who are into yoga might go to that fan to find who are the top creators, find the best content. And so the, that fan then might build up a following themselves. Yeah. And it creates this, this is the thing that's key to user-generated content networks, right? Is that it could turn people who are merely consumers of it into producers of the content as well. And if you have a kind of economic dynamic as well, that, you know, that the piggybacks along that to incentivize it even better, right? So very cool. To jump in with one thing there, just show notes perspective. There's this really good podcast from, I don't know, maybe six months ago by Cardiff Garcia in the New Bazaar. He was in the FT for a while, then he went to NPR and now he does his own thing. I don't know where he's doing it, but, and it talks about kind of the economics of glamour and this concept of glamour is often misunderstood, but he talks about glamour as kind of providing a canvas on which people can project their own desires and longings. And I think the NFT here kind of does this as, as part of kind of wanting to identify not just with the artist but with the community that's following the artist. So if people are interested in kind of that concept, he does a a very good deep dive on it. Very cool. 
I just added it too for sure. And sorry, so I'll I'll stop gushing now. There are a couple of things I'm actually still curious about too as well. So you have this really interesting reselling dynamic, which I obviously love. But I wanted to ask you with uh, the way. So you're you know you're you're not just courting sex workers. There's a ton creators of all types. There's a very obvious you know hypothesis for how this would be useful for them. But how are you planning to, or how do you negotiate the existing regulations that create the financial discrimination we were talking about earlier? If you're early adopter, if a substantial proportion of your early adopters are sex workers and are creating, you know, content that sex workers create, what, how are you thinking about the existing regulations on them? Yeah, it's a big challenge. And I should say with the existing regulations, it's certainly not illegal to use payment processors for legal forms of sex work, right? Like creating adult content is totally legal. But I spent probably three months just talking to payment processors, trying to find one that would work with us and got rejected by the vast majority of them. So we've come up with a really good solution, which is to use fiat to crypto payment rails to enable payments on the platform because we want to be super accessible to people who have no knowledge of crypto. So we want people to be able to use their credit card or their bank card to make payments. But what will happen is when they make a payment, they'll do so via an on-ramper that enables them to top up a wallet with cryptocurrency. We're going to be using USDC because it's the most stable and kind of secure stable coin. We don't want people to worry that their money, the value is going to fluctuate because people have a lot of skepticism around crypto for good reason. So when you go and subscribe to Creator, basically you'll have a wallet on Mintstars that you will top up with USDC, and then that USDC will be used to pay the creator directly. And the great benefit of this is the the wallets will be owned by the users. So that payment goes directly to the creator's wallet, and then that creator can cash out the money anytime they want. Unlike on other platforms where you have to wait, you know, maybe two weeks before you're allowed to cash out your funds, that wallet belongs to the creator. And so we can't freeze their funds. And on either end, the bank sees it as a purchase of cryptocurrency or a receipt of cryptocurrency, not as purchase of content. Got and that yeah, that is a very common thing you mentioned about the wait the two week wait period because you on the other side you won't have to worry about that because you're getting settlement within, you know, 35 blocks or whatever it is if you're using USDC. So that makes sense. And then the other thing that as Martin kind of hinted at earlier, but I would love to re-dive back into here is, you know, we are very much into you know, I guess you could even call like the platform economics that are being built before our eyes in a lot of this new sort of like user-owned platform economy. Right. So for the Minstars platform, what are, how, what are you folks thinking of now that you're kind of in the early days of it? What is the what is platform ownership going to look like? Right. How does this not become another Patreon only fan centralized type dealy? Yeah, it's a really challenging question because when we started, we wanted to tokenize the platform and have a token that could both be kind of an ownership equity token, but also be used as a utility token to incentivize good behaviors on the platform. For example, I wanted to use it to incentivize respectful behavior from fans where creators could rate fans based on how respectful they are. And if that fan is consistently rated well, we might give them some tokens as a reward, for example. But we quickly found there were, one, a lot of legal issues around tokens, particularly in the US, and them being considered a security, and that if we did a token sale, but then we also wanted to use it as a utility token, probably the SEC would crack down on us. And the other problem we saw was that if we did a token sale, the people who bought the token would probably be crypto bros and not the actual creators that we want to serve. True. Yes, definitely. And we've seen that happen with some other adult crypto platforms where, you know, their Telegram channel is just full of these guys who are there wanting to pump the token who don't actually really care about the purpose of the platform. Definitely. So we decided not to do that. I still want in the future to tokenize in some way and eventually perhaps to become a DAO, but I don't think we're there yet in terms of the groups that we want to serve, knowing how to participate in that. So we want to start off a bit more centralized, get people used to the platform and technology, and then start to introduce more decentralization. 
Yeah, I think that's there's this is, you know, what I guess people would now call a progressive decentralization has been something that we've talked about many times in the pod. And I think, you know, from my perspective, I think it depends, but I think you're taking a fairly well-trodden and smart route to it. Like, you know, Uniswap is one example we turn to a lot on the pod, but their governance evolved over many years. And, you know, they've only been around for like four years, but, you know, they now have governance network, approximately 18% of the tokens are distributed through their venture owners who then delegate to institutions like pension funds and endowments, stuff like that. It'd be interesting to see once you have, you know, some sort of hopefully similar traction to Uniswap, that'd be amazing <laughs> where, you know, in the future you can then say, who are our major stakeholders for this platform and how do we experiment with their governance in a way that doesn't lead to capturable outcomes, right? To governance capture. Because like you said, this is a product that can appeal to almost any creator depending on, you know, obviously a few constraints, but it'd be very interesting to see if you had any thoughts on in the early days around what what would the governance network of something like this creator platform look like? Yeah, I mean, the other big question going back to economics is where does the value of the token come from? Because if you want the token to be sold amongst people, okay, then is the value that it can be used for payments on the platform? Well, if you do that, it's probably a volatile token. And so the payments are volatile and people won't like that. If you make it just a governance token, like allowing people to vote on platform decisions, I think that would be great. But do people care enough about that, about being able to vote that they're going to buy this token? People don't even vote for president. Like it's a challenge. Very I mean, true. it could be an equity token. I think that might be the best option. Yeah. Or you could have two tokens, right? Resource does that really well. One is based on the, um, one is kind of the currency, and then there's a separate one tied to governance. And in a marketplace like this, labor marketplace is one of the models that works really well is kind of a time, time-based time vesting based on prorated GSV. So gross service volume sold through the platform. Here you've got subscriptions, so that's a little bit harder. So you'd have to tie it to something that's non-transactional. But definitely seems like in this model, the creators need to have, you know, as part of a multi-stakeholder group, significant governance rights tied to their prorata kind of performance on the platform. And then you build on top of that. But there's some really good models out there now, whereas a couple of years ago, there weren't. I think the challenges around, so the governance stuff that I think is going to be super challenging beyond, beyond kind of the tokenomics is, is some of the, uh, the stuff we were talking about earlier around, you know, how open is this marketplace and deplatforming? Does that happen? How does it happen? Who's involved in it and how to do it in a way that's not super biased? Mm -hmm. But that's the stuff that will make the, you know, that's the stuff of institution building that'll get figured out over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, another challenge with decentralization in this sector is ensuring safety and that all of the content is consensual. So if you had someone post illegal content or non-consensual content and you received a report of that, you have to be able to take it down. If you have 100% decentralization where the content is kind of direct from creator to fan, you don't really have any way to prevent that. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because John and I were trading notes privately about this, about how does decentralization work? And like the concern when you guys were talking earlier at the beginning of the podcast around kind of this blatant ban on kind of sex work, uh, broadly defined, I know we can use different terms, is maybe just because we haven't figured out an institution for figuring out how you can, in a profitable way, separate out sex work from trafficking, right? So in the same sense that the there's these problems now. Now, you know, Twitter will get taken over probably in the next week, 80% of the staff will get axed and you'll have all this new content online without any sort of regulation, right? And so we're going to go to this kind of environment where we get the worst of both worlds, where the platforms aren't accountable and they don't have any sort of internal controls that have popped up in, in this world where we're still operating in a place where uh, media or social networks aren't kind of liable in the same way that editorial platforms like the New York Times might be. So yeah, one idea would be to create kind of geographic cohorts within the platform that are mutually accountable to each other. So replicating kind of traditional traditional networks as they existed in kind of the world offline, right? Which is where you, you know, people looked after each other on the street. And could you replicate that online and kind of create a way where the governance is shared and learn kind of from microfinance networks and that that collectivity and mutualism, you know, not only in terms of, you know, I've got this weirdo 
guy that was following me online and now he's following me offline, but also, you know, like, okay, this person's in our group and they're, they're posting some weird stuff that might not be legal. Maybe we should be accountable for that. So essentially making each other in the platform mutually accountable. And there's some new research that'll come out kind of shortly next year that shows that when you have these nested layers, similar to what kind of Eleanor Ostrom was talking about, when you have these nested layers of common goods, being able to have the ability for groups to form within those nested layers actually creates kind of a, a better accountability mechanism. And so here, that might be a, an interesting model as well. Wow. I really like that idea. I would love to read that research. And I'm interested in crowdsourcing of moderation as a way of creating more safety on the platform. Like, for example, we've seen platforms that exist that enable people to uprate or downrate posts to try and like Twitter recently introduced downrating to be able to get rid of abusive comments. I think that tends to work pretty well. And I like the idea one other use of a token that I saw on our platform would be to reward people who report content that violates our terms with tokens if they've reported it correctly so that people are incentivized to keep the platform safe. Of course, then you have the issue of, well, if you create that incentive, are you then incentivizing people to post content that will be reported? So you have to have some way to make sure that the people reporting are not kind of in cahoots with the people posting the content, that there's sufficient punishment to the person who's been reported. But I think it's a really interesting idea to introduce to the users the feeling that safety on this platform is our collective responsibility. Yeah, very cool. It'll be awesome to see how it evolves. I probably should know this, but what stage are you at at this point with the platform? So where are you in the process? Have you guys raised capital? Are you raising capital? Is the platform fully launched? Like how many members are part of it? Like, Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, we are launching our beta in six weeks. We've been building and it's almost done. We have raised our pre-seed round and are still raising for that. But we've received an investment from Polygon and a bunch of angel investors. So if anyone listening interested in investing, reach out to me. We'd love to chat with you. But yeah, we're going to launch that beta version as kind of a private closed launch, invite a select group of creators from our waitlist to join and give each of them a limited number of subscribers um, so we can get feedback from them. We've got about 500 people signed up to our waitlist now. Um, would love for anyone listening to join our waitlist. We'll invite you for early access, but it's growing pretty rapidly, which is exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I don't know if Jahad, if you have anything else here, but we definitely got to get you back on in like six months to see how some of these governance things have flushed out and, you know, if the token. Absolutely. That'd be awesome. Sure. Thanks so much. And please send me that research that you mentioned. Like, oh, I want to like change yeah. PhD now and write about platform. <laughs> we're, we're definitely going to put it in the show notes. So Martin will handle that for sure. And we'll send it along to you. And I think you did kind of show, but before we jump off, you know, reshill, tell people where they can find the platform, yourself, online, and all of that. Yeah, you can find us at mintstars.com. You can sign up for our waitlist there. And all of our social media accounts are mintstarsreal. So follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, if you want to see some really terrible videos from me trying to be funny and share it with others really helps us to get the word out and build excitement. Awesome. Thank you so oh, much, and Jessica. I'm Jessica Van Mayer on Twitter. Which we will also put in the show notes for sure. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today, Jessica. This was fascinating and we are very interested in seeing where you end up in a few months. Thank you for creating this podcast because this is the kind of work that excites me the most. Like I am a socialist and so I'm interested in like, how do we get past capitalism? And this is really the area where I think we're going to see the future economy built. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. 